Please turn with me this morning to two passages, Psalm 68. Paul expounded on that, whether you know it or not. Psalm 68 and Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. Before we get started, we have an announcement, and that is that tomorrow night at 6 to 7 during the cooling of the day, as they used to call it in Genesis, our own Steve... Zvodnik will have a discussion and monitor kind of a discussion on persevering through adversity and afflictions through the spiritual life of Jesus Christ. And that's at the Eaton Park in the Waterworks, 6 till 7 tomorrow night. Everyone's welcome. I understand a couple of Tetelestai people came and joined the effort. Despise not the day of small beginnings. And this will be something that is ongoing. So pray for Steve and pray for this, that it may take off. There's a special direction in this ministry to those who are dealing with mentally, at least, addictions or distractions in life and how that can be addressed by the spiritual life. It's a very important topic. So be aware of that. I'm on the divine missions, and I've decided to fan out under, I think, the Holy Spirit's direction, I believe. And so we're going to continue that today. In Ephesians chapter 4, we have a magnificent vision of our Lord Jesus Christ in total victory. We have a, a vision of him as a conqueror and liberator. And it's important that we understand both of these facets of the first divine mission that of conquest, and that of liberation. In fact, the fact that we are conquered by him is our liberation. And we're going to see how this truth becomes realized. As the scripture says, when you set foot into the house of God, be more ready to listen than to offer the sacrifice of fools. And as it says in the scripture, Also, in James 1, be swift to hear, slow to anger, slow to speak, and let the engrafted word, and receive it with meekness, the engrafted word which is able to save your soul. Salvation is very present, and the word of God makes it very present in our lives as the Holy Spirit enlivens us and vivifies us. So keep that in mind. Paul's gospel is about a salvific divine invasion, a saving divine invasion, a universal rescue mission, nothing short of it. It is a salvific divine invasion of the present evil age. He makes that explicit in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 4, that Christ died for our sins in order to rescue us from this present evil age. And this present evil age has certain elements that constitute it, has certain ingredients, and that is sin, the power that holds people in slavery, sin, death, and the law itself, Torah, as taken under the power of sin, resulting in death. Also, principalities and powers, 
which are personal powers in opposition to God. They have been also, these are also the elements of the cosmos from which we are rescued. This redemptive invasion, and this is where we're innovating a little bit, this redemptive invasion occurs in two waves which are called divine missions. Two divine missions. And this is review with expansion. There are two divine missions and only two. The divine missions are undertaken by divine persons. And a divine mission means that a divine person is sent and proceeds forth from, on a mission, another divine person or persons of the divine trinity. I'll say that again. The divine missions are undertaken by divine persons. A divine mission means that a divine person is sent by a person or persons of the divine trinity into human history, into humanity, into the universal creation as a whole. And the first divine mission is simply, in Galatians 4.4, we've been studying this in the midweeks, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. The first divine mission can be summarized. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the power of the law, in order to redeem those under the power of the law. And we've been showing very clearly that's the whole of humanity in all of its generations. To redeem those under the power of the law, that was the purpose. In order that we would receive the full privilege of legal heirs, otherwise known as the adoption of God, as God's sons. This, too, along with Galatians 3.26, in which the people of God today are called the sons of God. You are all the sons of God through the fidelity that is in Christ Jesus. Hosea 2.1, Romans 9.4. All of this indicates that the present church is the Israel of God. Now, the first divine mission may be summed up as the Christ event. This is all going to be important vocabulary as well as close to a systematic treatment of this. this the Christ event has seven major elements, and I'm repeating that with expansion. First, the incarnation. John 1.14, the word who is divinity itself, the word who is God, the word was with God, the word is God. Nothing came into being unless it came into being through him, and the word became flesh, John 1, 14. Hebrews 2, 7 to 9 also indicates that he became a little lower than the angels for a little while and is now crowned with glory and honor, and he, by the grace of God, tasted death for every human being in order to bring many sons to glory, says 2, 10 to 13, the incarnation. The second element of the Christ event, every one of these elements is saving in itself. When Thomas Torrance was asked by someone, when were you saved? He made an interesting observation. He said, when Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. And that's got some explanation behind it. Not going to do it today, though. Just putting some questions in there. So the second element of the Christ event 
is his life and vicarious obedience in the days of his flesh, meaning that his whole life was a response to God the Father for us. His whole life was a life of obedience. And that is why Hebrews 5, 7 to 9 says that in, calls it in the days of his flesh. These are what are chronicled by the so-called synoptic gospels, Mark first, Matthew, Luke, and John in a different way, John in an extraordinary way, as we've seen. And also, this life of obedience, very important, because he becomes the author of eternal salvation for those who obey him with the obedience of faith. But this is the very faith which is ignited by the gospel. And the very beginning of faith is always due to God's grace. Anytime someone believes, it's due to God's grace. The beginning of faith is God's grace. Romans 5:18 to 19 speaks of his life as obedience. And again, his obedience is saving. It's salvific for all of humankind. Romans 5:18 to 19 because the third element of the Christ event, his life in the flesh culminated or came to a zenith expression in, the ex- in obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion in Philippians 2.8. And this is the act of righteousness by which sinners, all sinners, are constituted righteous. This is the act of obedience by which the many are made righteous and are given life-giving justification. That's Romans 5, 18 and 19 again. And so, again, his life in the flesh culminated in obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion in Philippians 2, 8. We know that that's going to result in not only his exaltation to the right hand of the Father, but a future time in which every knee will genuflect. And every tongue will acknowledge that Yahweh is Yeshua. Yahweh of the Old Testament is Jesus the Nazarene, the incarnate Yahweh, to the glory of God the Father. The glory of God the Father there means that now there are two kingdoms really happening right now. The kingdom of God is really in two segments. First, it's the kingdom of Christ. Ephesians 5.5 5 splits these up too. The kingdom of Christ. Christ is reigning now, invisibly, but really. And his reign is made visible, or his reign is realized in people who have been conquered by his grace. And that's us. That should be us. That's the church. And then there is the kingdom of God, which is only consummated when once Christ has reigned until all his enemies are placed under his feet, including death. He then submits the kingdom to the Father so that God will be all in all. God all in all is the consummation of the kingdom of God. And that is yet future. So we have an expectation. We have an expectation that has to do with a struggle, that has to do with suffering, that has to do with the word of the cross, and that's all something we're going to hit when we hit Romans chapter 8. After his life in the flesh, culminating in obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion, there is the fourth element of the Christ event, which is burial. 
All of these are events that are saving. For the scripture says we were buried with him in baptism and raised with him by the glory of the Father. The glory of the Father is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is also the agent in that baptism. The baptism that Paul speaks of is a baptism by which we are baptized by the Spirit into Christ in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, In our baptism into Christ, we were buried together with Christ. This shows again that we are grafted on to a double trajectory of Jesus Christ. And this is where I'm going to end up today. He descended from heaven. And that includes his incarnation. And that includes his obedience to the extent of death. And that includes this element called burial. We have been grafted into that downward trajectory. For the scripture says that we were crucified with him. The scripture says that we were buried with him. But being grafted into that downward trajectory, we are also grafted into the upward trajectory, which says that we are raised together with him. We have been elevated together with him. And seated or enthroned together as a kingdom of priests, seated or enthroned with him together in the heavenly places. And that's where all of our spiritual blessings are. So, burial. 1 Corinthians 15.4, Isaiah 53.9, he will be buried along with those who were crucified with him. Mark 15, 43 to 46, John 19, 38 to 42. And again, we were buried with him. And we were baptized into his death, Paul says. Therefore, we're raised with him. The fifth element then, perhaps the most important, is resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Romans 1, 4. 1 Corinthians 15, 4, Matthew 20, verse 19, 28, 1 through 6, and Isaiah 53, 10 to 12. But we were raised together with him. In fact, Colossians 2, 12 says it this way. You were buried along with him by being baptized. And I always indicate that that's baptism by the Spirit into Christ. And in union with him, you were also raised up along with him, listen to the translation, by God's faithfulness that was in action when he raised Jesus from the dead. You were buried along with him by being baptized, and in union with him you were also raised up along with him by God's faithfulness that was in action when he raised Jesus from the dead. The sixth element of the Christ event, and I'm going to fan out on these even much more in the future, elevation after resurrection. And again, we were grafted onto that trajectory because we were lifted up with him or elevated into the heavenly places and seated together with him. That's Ephesians 2, 5, and 6. And his elevation, coupled with his descent, is for one reason. And that's where I'm hitting Ephesians 4. All this is to lead up to Ephesians chapter 4. The whole reason why he descended first and then ascended is so that he can fill up everything with himself. 
And that fulfills the Father's original unstoppable determination in Ephesians 1, 9 to 11 to sum up everything. Tapanta, that's everything universally. That's all of created reality universally in Christ to sum it all up. Or as Irenaeus and some of the early church fathers called it, recapitulate. Anakephaliao is the Greek word. All things in Christ. So he descended first and then ascended in order that he might fill up the whole universe with himself. The whole universe will be comprised of Christ. That's God's ultimate plan. So that he, in, we're going to look now at Ephesians 4. The fact that the scripture says that in his ascension or his elevation, that's the sixth element which we're hunkering down on right now. He that led captivity captive means more than a limited conquest or a partial rescue mission, as it's often been interpreted. It means that he has rescued all that is under captivity to the elements and the former ruling powers of the cosmos. And that's a universal liberation and ongoing transformation. So again, that he led captivity captive means much more than a limited conquest or a partial rescue mission. It means that he rescued all that is under the captivity to the elements of the cosmos and under the former ruling powers of the cosmos or the present evil age. And so his rescue was of all of creation, all of humanity, all of history. Now look at Ephesians 4. I'm going to start with this. This is the passage I wanted to get to. All of this has been introductory so far. Ephesians 4, from the Greek text I put together this translation. Now each one of us was given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. I would translate that according to the measureless measure of the gift of Christ. For the Spirit was given to him without measure, says John 3.34, and the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So the, every one of us, each and every one, to each and every one, was given grace according to the measureless measure of the gift of Christ. The gift of Christ is measureless because it is given to all. Verse 8, this is why the scripture says, now he's quoting Psalm 68, 18 here. Very important. So I'm going to make eight observations on this point. This is why it, or the scripture, says. This is Psalm 68, 18, but in the LXX or the Septuagint translation, that's 67, 19, not to be confused. The reason I do that is because the Greek text is what Paul quotes here, and he changes it. He changed it, but he did it under the direction of the Holy Spirit. This is why the scripture says, quote, he ascended to the height, leading captive a host of captives, or this could be translated, leading captive captivity itself, all that was captive itself. He gave presence we could say that as gifts. He gave presents. Please notice that he says he gave presents.
presence in Paul's translation or Paul's interpretation. He gave gifts to men or to mankind, to humankind. That's men and women, of course. He gave presents or gifts to mankind. These are gifts as distribution of the spoils of his victory over the elements of the cosmos and over principalities and powers. And it's a gift that's never expected to be repaid. But please note that Paul says, having ascended to the highest heaven, that's Christ, the sixth element of the Christ event, he gave gifts to men. Now, Psalm 68 doesn't say that. It says he received gifts from men. He received gifts from mankind. Why does Paul change it? Well, there's reasons. Now, look at this. This is where Paul does some spirit directed exegesis verse 9 Paul this is Paul taking off like a good rabbi to exegete now what does he ascended infer as Psalm 68:18 says except that he first also descended to the lower regions now, people say that's the lower earth, the, uh, the Hades or the realm of Sheol, and that may be something that he did, but this actually means the lower regions or the earth. This is referring to his descent to earth and his incarnation, followed by a life of vicarious obedience, followed by the culmination of that obedience in the crucifixion and death, followed by burial, followed by an upward trajectory. He first descended. You don't ascend unless you first have descended. So that's what Paul is saying. He's saying basically in violation of normal physics, what comes down must go up. And that, that's what God does. He delights in violating the human laws of natural laws of physics. So, what, now, what does he ascended infer except that he first descended to the lower regions? And I would translate that, that is, to the earth. And this, again, re- reminds us of the grafting in and the participation implications here. The downward and upward trajectory is something that we have participated in. And, in fact, our lives on this earth are a practical identification with Christ's downward trajectory. We bear in our bodies the dying of the Lord Jesus. We are not enthusiasts like the Corinthians, spiritual enthusiasts like the Corinthians who believed they were already on the other side of suffering. They were already reigning. And Paul says, well, you may be kings, but I'm just the court jester. I'm a fool for Christ because I'm suffering. And the scripture says that in Romans 8, if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. So there is, right now, we are more involved, practically speaking, with the downward trajectory, with the expectation of our bodily resurrection and glorification. And so please note Paul's change of receiving gifts from mankind in Psalm sixty-seven, nineteen of the LXX or the Septuagint. 
and he changes to giving gifts to mankind. Michael Heisler, in his famous book, The Unseen Realm, helps us on page 293. He says, in the ancient world, the conqueror would parade the captives and demand tribute for himself. Jesus is the conqueror of Psalm 68, and the spoils do include, do indeed rightfully belong to him, but spoils were also distributed after conquest. That's why Paul makes, he's not changing the meaning, he's just saying that he distributed gifts among mankind. He gave gifts to mankind, having ascended. This is the graciousness of our conqueror. So there are some points to deal with here. First, this idea of conquest and distribution of spoils is also found in the depiction of the crucified and exalted servant of Yahweh by whose agony many are justified. Isaiah 53.11 is the universal gospel. By his agony, by that which he experiences, by his knowledge, that means by his experience of agony, many will be justified. Many will be justified. Paul interpreted that properly in Romans 5.18 as all receive justification by his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. Isaiah 53 is enormously significant to the gospel, as is Habakkuk chapter 2. So in Isaiah 53, 12, the prophet envisages Messiah as both receiving and distributing spoils in his conquest. It's a mistake to emphasize too much the conqueror aspect here, as it's a mistake to emphasize too much the liberation aspect. They're both one. In fact, God conquers by liberating. God conquered us by liberating us. He conquered us in our sinfulness, and he continues to do so through the word and the spirit. He conquers us in our Adamic ontology by liberating us from our Adamic ontology. It was for freedom that Christ freed us. Therefore, stand firm in the freedom and do not be enslaved again with any yoke of slavery, any burden of slavery. Second point, it is important to note that the conqueror in Psalm 68 verses 15 to 18, is called Yahweh. The psalmist is speaking to God himself, to the God of Israel. You ascended on high as a conqueror. Paul is saying that Yahweh who ascended on high as a conqueror is one Yeshua, Jesus, the resurrected Messiah. He has ascended. And so he surpasses the custom of receiving the spoils. To the victor belong the spoils. Under God's grace, the victor is Christ to whom we belong the spoils, but spoils that he gives. Once he gave himself, he didn't stop giving. God is a giving God as much as God is a living God, and as long as God is living, he's giving. And so as long as we're living, we ought to be receiving. We're on the receiving end of God's grace. And we grow in grace, and we're strong in grace, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 
That's the advice I would have for any young person. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That first, that foremost, that always. Be strong in something you couldn't earn, you couldn't deserve. So, it's important to note that the person identified in the first person in Psalm 68 is Yahweh, and that he has conquered the evil Elohim, or the bulls of Bashan, as they're called, and they're pictured elsewhere in Psalm 22:12. Jesus from the cross says to the Father, the bulls of Bashan are beneath me. And what it, what it meant was that he was, through the cross, conquering principalities and powers that had a hold on the human race. Supernatural powers, once called Elohim, that God judged and dealt with through the cross. But again, even with principalities and powers, God's conquest means liberation. Paul, again, becomes the great example. We have to call Paul to have that, this illustrated, and we will. The conquest that he speaks of here in the context is of the bulls of Bashan, evil principalities and powers, and of the elements of the cosmos, which are found in Galatians 4, 3, 4, 9. We're dealing with that in the midweek, 1 John 2, 16 and 17. Sin as a power. More than a moral flaw, sin as a power, an enslaving power. Death and the flesh, as well as Torah or the law, because the strength of sin is the Torah and the sting of death is sin. And all these have been conquered by Jesus Christ. Third, it is important to note that the distribution of gifts to mankind has to do with the second divine mission also, that of the Holy Spirit, the sending of the Spirit into our hearts, as Galatians 4, 6 says. I'm not emphasizing that today. So that the conqueror slash liberator, that is Jesus, gives the gifts, is also matched by 1 Corinthians 12, 7, that the Spirit distributes those gifts. The Son giving them from his place of conquest the Spirit distributing them right on this earthly realm to mankind shows the coalition of the two divine missions. As the scripture says in 1 Corinthians twelve seven. note this well because this is very practical in its application. For a manifestation of the Spirit, says the scripture, is given to each and every one. Each and every one in the addressable community called the church, the body of Christ, the Israel of God, the proleptic human community that will one day be the universal community of human beings, to each and every one, says the scripture, not to a few, but to each and every one, a manifestation of the spirit was given with the purpose of that manifestation of the spirit being for the benefit of all. Not just everybody in the church, everybody in the world. And everybody in the church gets that gift. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors who teach. Those are the cybernetic gifts. And cyber was used before cyber technology. Cybernetic or communicative gifts. 
apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors who teach are just a sample of these manifestations of the Holy Spirit that are distributed among mankind in this, part, this time right now in history of the second divine mission. There are also, on top of that, manifestations of faith, which is extraordinary faith in certain situations. There is manifestation, a spiritual manifestation of the grace of healing. You say, is that still extant today? Yes, of course it is. I'll show you how in a minute. Of the working of miracles, of the ability to distinguish between spirits. And that also means to discern whether someone's motives are spurious or seductive or some, somebody's a user in your life. And you discern that early before it becomes a disaster. Discerning of spirits. And sometimes people discern it for other people who don't have that discernment. That's why we help each other. Serving is another one. Serving in general. Counseling and encouragement, another gift. Leadership or showing of specific acts of mercy, of generosity, and giving. And all of these have way more variations than we could imagine. While all are governed by the love of God, all of these manifestations are governed by the love of God, which the Holy Spirit pours out into our hearts. The Holy Spirit who was given to us. That's the second divine mission. This will all come together only after a few more weeks. Now, a manifestation of the Spirit, and what that doesn't just mean something that happens momentarily. A manifestation of the Spirit is something that characterizes you for the rest of your life on earth. Mine happens to be teaching, but it's more that more than that. It's a gift of faith. That's my gift that I receive from the Holy Spirit is faith, which is an unquestioned assurance that has never varied in 48, 45 years. Never for a second. There's a lot of other self-doubts that have happened, but never. That gift has always been an active gift in the manifestation of the Spirit. That's faith. But... To everyone is given, not just those who are special. So all are gifted in Christ as recipients of the divine missions. Now, there are competencies and gifts. Someone can be competent but not gifted. There's a difference between a human competence and a divine manifestation of a gift. And I always like to illustrate it in the medical field. And Dr. Vicki, you and I were talking about this yesterday. There can be a physician or, say, a nurse. And I remember laying in the hospital getting hit with pain shots every four hours for seven days. And you have different nurses, and one nurse may be competent at what she does, but another nurse may have a spiritual manifestation of healing, and they actually aid in the miracle of divine healing because they act not just out of a competency that they learned in college, but they act out of a compassion, a mercy, and a spiritual manifestation. The same is true of a physician. A physician can be a competent 
physician or a doctor or a physician can be operating under the manifestation of the spirit called healing. And the way they treat and even the way that they comport themselves aids in the divine miracle of healing. Every time there's a healing, there's a miraculous content to the healing. So many are competent. There's another way to say many are competent to counsel. Every Christian should be competent to counsel in some way. Parents to children, for example. But there's also the counselor who speaks a word in season to the weary and liberates the one that he or she is counseling. And that counselor has more than a competency to counsel. That counselor has a manifestation of the spirit to give a liberating and even transforming and life redirecting word. And that's a lot different than a competency. People glory in human competencies. We should be glorying in spiritual manifestations. So, many are competent to counsel. But there's a difference between human competence and divine enablement as a manifestation of the Spirit. There are some people who want to help. And I liked what Ronald Reagan one time says. If someone comes to you and says, I'm from the government and I'm here to help, run! Sometimes people like to help. Others have the gift of helps. And you're amazed because God sends them around right when you might need help. And they're, they're like saviors with a small S. And uh, they're like the judges. The judges were saviors. They were raised up at certain times in history, crisis personalities. And so there are people that want to help. And their help sometimes could be a hindrance. And there are people who are competent to help, and then there's people with the gift of helps. They get stuff done. They, you know what they do? They distribute the burden of responsibility in the church so it's not all up to one omnicompetent person, the minister. That's called burnout, guaranteed burnout. The minister who runs around endangered because he's counseling when he visits, he's, he's counseling for among other things, bored housewives. He shouldn't be doing, running around. Or he's visiting or he's visiting the sick or he's enacting all the things that the ministry of ministers should be doing and he doesn't have time to study or teach so he gives a moral pep talk on Sunday morning until the buzzer goes off under the pulpit or until the lozenge in his mouth melts. But the pastor has to realize his functional specialty is teaching the word of God. And he has to give full attention to that. That doesn't mean that he doesn't do other things, that he doesn't demonstrate compassion, that he doesn't visit on occasion or minister on occasion or counsel on occasion. I'm not talking about the guy being a complete hermit. Although sometimes that's attractive in today's world. I just happen to be a little reactionary sometimes. So I, the, my Adamic ontology is when someone says, would you like to join InstaFace or something? I want to say, join this. <laughs> but anyways, I'm not a joiner. But that's, see, that's the Adamic ontology that God is conquering in me. It's a lifetime task, believe me. 
my dealing with my Adamic ontology is my full-time job, so I haven't got time to deal with yours. So, and you don't have time to deal with anyone else's. So the difference between a competency and an ongoing manifestation of the Spirit is vast. No one person in a given assembly of Christians, like a church, is omnicompetent. That is, competent in all specialties. Just like a totalitarian political state wants to be omnicompetent for you. And when a generation gives in to the totalitarian urge for the state to be omnicompetent, you're done. You've, you've submitted to a yoke of slavery. The generation that I'm speaking to that's coming up is in the greatest danger of human history of coming under a totalitarianism because they expect the state to be omnicompetent for them. And that's when they cave. That's when they're seduced. And the possibilities of the next couple generations of being under an Islamic state or under a totalitarian political state, the percentages of that happening are very high. That's why this gospel is so important. Because the conquest of sin as a power and of the cosmos and the elements of this age will free a generation or at least a part of the generation and prevent that disaster. And there's a possibility of the prevention of it. A pastor, for example, who believes himself to be omnicompetent will burn out. And they have burnt out. He has to get down to functional specialty, teaching the word. Distribution of gifts or manifestations of the Spirit means a distribution of the burden of labor so that everyone bears his own burden, Galatians 6, 5, and the many can bear an intolerable burden when one has one in the body of Christ through love and fulfill the law of Christ. Fourth point then, so much for that. Over all of this, Jesus is Yahweh, the incarnate word, the conqueror, the liberator, the Lord of lords, the king of kings, the reigning Yahweh Lord. Over all of this, Jesus is Yahweh, the incarnate word, the conqueror. He is the liberator, the conqueror. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-five to 27 says, He does reign now and will reign until all his enemies are under his feet, including death, the last enemy, And death has already been defeated by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But death then has to cough up all its victims. So that anything that's been the victim of death in all of human creation, all of creation, not only human creation, but all of creation, will be liberated in the consummation of the kingdom. When God is all in all. When God is all and in all, there's no death. And that's what we have an expectation of. Fifth point, it must be understood that Ephesians 4, 8 through 10 is not dealing only with conquest, but also with liberation as the act of God in Christ for us. The conqueror of the elements of the cosmos and of the principalities and powers that he paraded in his ascension in Colossians 2, 15 In his ascension wake, behind him was paraded a a triumphant parade over his enemies, as Paul put poetically in Colossians 2.15. 
the conqueror of the elements of the cosmos, sin, death, and the flesh, and principalities and powers that he paraded in his ascension. That liberator is also the liberator of humanity, of creation, and of history. Jesus Christ, who conquered the elements, the enslaving elements of this evil age, is also the liberator of all of creation. He is the liberator. He takes all of human history into himself and redeems it from its roller coaster of ups and downs. And we'll see how that, that also is found in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 11, that God programmed history with his son in mind, Christ Jesus. Sixth point, the divine purpose of this downward and upward trajectory is found in 4.10 of Ephesians. He who descended, 4.10, he who descended, the downward trajectory, also ascended high above all, high above all, pantone, that's the last word in Revelation, pantone, he ascended high above all, that means everything is subjected to him, including death, he who descended also ascended high above all in order to fill up everything. Tapanta, again, Paul multiplies these all-encompassing words, tapanta, in order to fill up everything. And that means, that is, fill up everything with himself. That is the ultimate purpose of God. It goes back to Ephesians 1, 9 to 11, which is a very important passage, in which it's disclosed that God's unstoppable determination is to sum up everything, and that's tapanta again in Ephesians 1.10, in Christ. And according to Ephesians 3.10-11, that includes history or the ages of history, summed up in Christ. Seventh, please note in this dealing with Psalm 68 and Ephesians 4, that the vision of Jesus the conqueror liberator with a host of captives in his wake compares splendidly with our vision of the son of righteousness with healing in his rays. The ascended Lord conqueror liberator with captivity around him having been captivated by him is like the son of righteousness arising with healing in its wings, the image that we began divine missions with in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 1 and 2. You know what it is? It's a picture. It's a vision of Jesus Christ and his universally saving significance. It is this vision without which the people of God are perishing. They're continuing in their Adamic ontology. Their Christian life is to try to reconfigure the Adamic ontology into something more pleasing to people. Their attentiveness is on themselves. The attention is curved in as it happened to Israel, and that's why Israel went through A.D. 70 crisis. The attentiveness curved in on itself. It became a selfie culture. The church becomes a selfie culture. The attention turns in on self just like it did with Lucifer, whose attention turned in on himself where he became aware of his own beauty that came from God rather than the giver. And 
This is what happens when the attention is curved inward. The reason I'm presenting you an image and a vision of Jesus Christ is so that your attentiveness can be curved outward and away from yourself because there's your salvation. There's your practical salvation. There's your practical deliverance. Without this vision, people perish. Without this vision of an all-conquering, all-liberating, all-transforming Christ, there is no spiritual life because that vision gives the light in which we live that life. There is no life without that light, without that vision. Without that vision, my people are perishing, God says. People perish. Perishing doesn't mean they go to hell. Perishing means they continue in the Adamic ontology that Christ came to liberate them from. And so they're slaves to their moods. They're slaves to a bitter disposition, to bitterness and hatred and envy and jealousy and all the things that preachers don't preach about because they want to get to the shocking fleshly sins that they say they don't commit, but they dream about all day long. <laughs> I just love to poke, a f- poke at the fundies once in a while. I haven't done that in a while. Modern-day Pharisees. And so before the great act of liberation of the Son of Righteousness rising, there's a day that burns like a furnace which devours the adversaries. Then creation is liberated, as noted by the calves loosed from the stalls, leaping in open fields. That image is splendid in Malachi 4, 1 and 2. And so the act of conquest and the act of liberation are one. There's one more thing I want you to observe in this passage. And all of this is going to culminate in a moment. The act of conquest and the act of liberation are one. Saul of Tarsus also known as Paul, the apostle to the pagans. Realize this more than anyone else because his conquest by Jesus Christ was his liberation. His confrontation with Yeshua of Nazareth, when he saw Jesus on the outskirts of Damascus, he saw Yahweh who had ascended to the heights and had taken captivity itself captive. He saw the one who descended first, then ascended to fill up everything with himself. Paul saw all that. And so Paul, who was in fact the chief of sinners, the worst of sinners, because again, give him the head of steam that he had, he would have outdone Hitler and Stalin and all these other monsters of human history because his goal was to destroy the people of Jesus, this cult leader, Jesus. And had he destroyed that church, which was his intent, he would have effectively destroyed the new creation. Now that's pretty bad. And so how does God confront this evil person who's an injurious, blasphemous persecutor. He confronts him and says, I'm Jesus the Nazarene. We'd say, nice to meet you. And as we know, Paul was struck by that vision so that for three days afterwards, he was blind So he had emblazoned into his brain nothing but the vision of a risen Savior named Jesus the Nazarene whom he was trying to destroy. So what was the conquest of Paul? 
if not his liberation. Conquest and liberation are one in Jesus Christ. And so when he subjects all things to himself, which he's going to do, we, we await a savior, a deliverer from heaven who shall change these bodies of humiliation into a body of glory like his own. This he will be able to do by the power with which he will subject everything to himself. The subjection of everything to himself is the liberation and the transformation of everything. That's salvific. That's Jesus Christ. That's God. That's a triune God, the God of all grace. So, the act of conquest and the act of liberation are one. In the measure that I'm conquered by God in my Adamic ontology, that's the degree that I'm liberated by him in what we call the Christian spiritual life. We put off the old man. We put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge and righteousness. That's Christian living. Paul was conquered and liberated in his confrontation with Yahweh incarnate in Jesus the Nazarene, just as we are conquered in our Adamic ontology and liberated to operate in the spirit and under the power of grace and to find that particular manifestation of the spirit that was gifted to us. And sometimes people don't discover it. And sometimes people do discover it and then hide it in a napkin and bury it in the earth. Some Christians say, I didn't want that gift. I want it his gift. I want to be what I want to. You want to do what I'm doing? Come on. And you want to deal with all the stuff that goes with it? <laughs> Go ahead. Ain't no glamour in this office. No glamour in this. There's no, there is no glamour in being a communicator of the word of God in this world. Just like there is no such thing as a death with dignity. There's no dignity in death. Ask Jesus Christ. The crucifixion reveals that there is not dignity in death. And we're delivered all day long over to death for Christ's sake. That the life of Christ, which has not only dignity but glory, may be manifested in our bodies. The sufferings we endure in this life aren't glamorous. We're talking about the word of the cross here. Just a hint. Eighth, the eighth thing, though, here's the tick. I love this. This is one that really hammered me in my sleep, and I woke up with it. There's one more thing in Psalm 68, 18 that we hear as a whisper, but I think it's intended to be a holler in Ephesians 4, 8. And that phrase is, he gave gifts to men or to mankind, but notice what it says in the text of of psalm 68 18 especially those who are rebellious or even the rebellious he gave gifts to mankind even to the rebellious and rebellious means unbelieving and so believing people aren't the only people that benefit here but who can fit that bill more than paul or saul of tarsus he received the gift of apostleship and the grace of apostleship as the most rebellious man that ever lived on this planet. So 
He gives gifts. If you take what Paul is saying, that not receives gifts from men, but gives gifts to men, that he's on that side of the distribution of the spoils, then he also gives those gifts, and he pays special attention to a certain category of people, the rebellious. And that's, I, if, if I have a testimony, that's my testimony. I was a rebel against God. I knew he was calling me. I ran like hell. I would have bought a ticket to Tarshish or a ticket to ride. And I would have been swallowed up by a whale and thrown up on the beach, which metaphorically speaking kind of happened. He gives gifts to the rebellious. Hey, let's call Paul. Him? Yeah, let's, let's call Paul. Because he's the worst of sinners. And let's gift him, let's say, let's make him the apostle to the pagans. That's because he gifts those who are rebellious. So if we apply the idea of distribution of manifestations of the spirit to even the rebellious, then we're perhaps encouraged to consider Paul himself, who, though among the most rebellious of mankind, the worst of sinners, 1 Timothy 1.15, and he said, I got this one saying I want to tell you, and it's a faithful saying. Christ came into this world to save sinners. Of whom I have achieved. Not only does he save sinners, he gifts the rebellious with apostleship. So let's take the worst of sinners and give him the grace of apostleship to bring the nations into obedience of faith. And so there's an allusion here to Psalm 68. You ascended to the heights, taking away captives. You received gifts from people, even from the rebellious. This should not be localized as Jesus going into some compartment of Hades and taking out dead people or receiving to himself a few lucky people. This is the conquest of all of the elements of the evil age and the liberation of all creation from its slavery to corruption. This is the liberation of all humankind. This is the redemption of us who were under the law because we were under sin and under death. This is a universal saving mission. You ascend on high. You have taken many captives. You receive tribute from men, including even sinful rebels. How about Saul called Paul? And then it says, in order that the Lord himself may live there. Yahweh Shema, the Lord is there. You look at Paul, you say, the Lord is there. It is not I any longer who live, Paul said, but Christ who lives in me. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I was a rebellious one to whom God showed grace and mercy and kindness through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And so now to look at me, you say, the Lord is there. Ezekiel 48 and verse 35 says that the city, when it's finally the new Jerusalem, it's going to be called Yahweh Shema. The Lord is there. Paul referred to that when he said, if unbelievers come to your church and you're speaking in tongues like a stampede of horses, they're going to say, what the hell's going on? But if they come there and a message proceeds with a clear interpretation, then they will say, surely God is there. 
God is there. I'll say this. If you receive people with love as Christ received you into his kingdom. And if this is the way we receive people and visitors who come here and people who come here and one another all the time in Romans 15, 7. People will say the Lord is there. So Yahweh is there. Left for the weeks to come, enthronement is the seventh element. Christ, Lord over creation, Lord over humanity, Lord over the ages, Lord over the nations, and we seated together with him. This sevenfold Christ event, which encompasses the first divine mission, which extends into the present age, is coetaneous with the coming of faithfulness. And I'm telling you my pastoral duty in this, my pastoral aim in this. I am at this time. What am I doing? I am presenting to you the vision of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance and in the universal impact of the cross of Christ so that you can live in the light of that vision. There is no Christian spiritual living unless there is this vision. Otherwise, it's just a moral improvement an Adamic reconfiguration, a Christian thing with a label of a fish on it. It's bumper stickers. So the alternative to living in the light of this vision, not very pleasant. It's continuation in Adamic ontology. Tragically, the worst kind of Adamic ontology is the kind they put Christian labels on. We're trying to prevent that. It's called perishing in 1 Corinthians 1.18. It's called the consideration of the word of the cross to be foolishness. That's the alternative. There is no Christian living that does not take place, A, in the light of this vision of the crucified Lord, and B, that does not take place in the spirit. So when we get down to the nuts and bolts of what we do every day and how we live out our lives in this time of eschatological apocalyptic warfare, it'll be because we have seen this vision first. And it's because we live in the light of this vision and in his light we see light. Without it, the people perish. Without this vision that we're trying to labor to present to you and paint a picture of in Galatians 3.1, there is attractive Adamic ontology, which burns up in a puff of smoke at the judgment seat of Christ when he appears in his appearance. And thank God that it does. We don't have to carry on in Adamic ontology through the eternal ages to come. Because our judgment will be our liberation from it. But why not get liberated from it now so we don't have to go through the trauma of a fire that burns it all up? All right? That's why I'm teaching it. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity. What comes through human competency is one thing. And I must confess, Father, I don't seem to have much of that. But what comes through a manifestation of the Spirit is another thing. And I must confess, Father, that I'm quite dependent on that. And Father, we thank you that like Jacob, whose hip was thrown out of joint so that he had to walk with a staff the rest of his life, we're grateful 
to have been conquered by you because the more we're conquered by you, the more we're liberated. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name.